Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of For What It's Worth podcast. Uh, my house is a mess today. This is probably going to get loud in the background. Uh, my computer is doing a backup. My, my archiving SATA system is uh, doing a backup of everything. So nothing is turned off. My phone is on. My iPad is on. My computer is on. My wife is in the other room producing an event. Uh, and it's chaos. So there's going to be noise. And my phone still makes a really erratic uh, feedback noise every time it gets close to my recorder, my tripod, anything. So um, I get a lot of questions from people about this podcast, and they're like, who is the podcast for? Now, I never once thought about that until I was asked that this week. And I thought, I got, I got an explanation for you. If you're the kind of guy who goes out on New Year's Eve with your AR-15 or your shotgun or your 45 and just unloads that clip straight up in the air while you're screaming and drinking an 18-pack of Bush Light, this podcast is for you. And if you're a woman who thinks that using deodorant and taking a swim in an irrigation ditch is the same thing as taking a shower, then this podcast is for you. I hope that helps. Uh, okay, so I'm a bit tired today. I had a dream last night. Uh, our bed has five comforters on it, five, okay, stacked on top of one another. And um, when we sleep, it's, it's a battle that takes place. It's, a, it's constant ebb and flows. It's like there's pillow, pillow takeovers in the night. There's kneeing and kicking and fighting, and um, comforters are being stretched here and there. But I woke, up on the, I woke up yesterday, or this morning, I should say, and uh, all five comforters were on a pile on the floor on my side. And I, I, was still, I was still asleep, so I looked over at my wife, who was totally uncovered and looked like she'd been frozen solid into one, like, one little blob. She was curled up, but I could tell how cold she was. Which is really funny because normally she's the one that takes the comforters. But I was having a dream about traveling in an RV with Steve Jobs. And we were not getting along well at all. He's like, you're an idiot. You don't know your keyboard shortcuts. And I'm like, you're a clown. You don't know how to change a tire. And then he tried to make me sleep under the RV, which suddenly became like a lowrider. So I was trying to wedge myself underneath it. Because when Steve Jobs says, look, dude, get underneath the RV. That's where you're sleeping. You go, okay. You're Steve Jobs, I'll get under the RV. But it was the, the, the undercarriage was hitting my chest, and so we got in this big fight. So I was trying to make a nest under the RV to survive because Jobs was like, you're an a-hole, get out of here. So I'm a little off today. Um, oddly enough, I have not had a callback from Microsoft. Um, I think Gates has been busy doing interviews, which is totally acceptable. I, I expect as soon as the virus is controlled, I will get a call from them. And I will be uh, given equipment because of the masterful content that I'm putting out. Hey, make sure, before we go any further, make sure you hit that subscribe button and the like. Oh, wait a minute. I don't have any of that stuff. Forget it. Okay. If uh, I wanted to, let's talk about hero, the hero this week. And one is a good hero and uh, the second is a sad scenario. So for those of you new to the podcast, I always give a hero each week, somebody that I think is doing something well. And uh, at the same time, uh, and then I go through a bunch of points afterwards. So this week we have two heroes. And the first hero is, it could be you, actually. It could be me. It could be my neighbor. It could be whoever. Uh, and that is for anyone in the world who is following quarantine protocol. So if, you're, if you've basically said the same thing that we've said, which is, it doesn't matter what we have to sacrifice in the short term in terms of social distancing, not being able to be social, not doing parties, not traveling, not going to tr popular trailheads, whatever it is, whatever sacrifice you're making. If you've looked at the scenario and said, great, no, no worries, I'll do it. It's for the greater good. 
you're my hero this week because we all know we've seen stories from all around the world uh, of people not paying attention to protocol or world leaders like Mexico, Brazil, just insanity where they're just saying, I don't, I don't want to take part in this kind of thing. But I think for the most part, people are really doing the right thing. And so if you're one of those people that's taken it seriously and said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sacrifice in the short term to try to avoid a long-term difficulty for us as a collective society, species, world, etc., then you're my hero this week. The second hero is a bit of a tragic – I can't even say a bit of a tragic story. It's a seriously tragic story. Um, the hero of this week is a guy named Peter Beard. And if you don't know Peter Beard, um, just the fact that you're hearing his name right now for the first time uh, makes me feel good because – Beard is a what I would call an atypical human being, and let me just give you a brief little history here. Now, the reason I'm making him a hero this week is that he has, he's 82 years old, he has dementia, and he disappeared from his house in Montauk, New York, and he was seen last Tuesday, not this Tuesday, but a week ago Tuesday, walking away from the house, and he hasn't been seen since, so it's not good, and the, the police are sort of tapering off their search in, in that area, and that's not a good sign. I believe his house was close to the water, but Beard is a guy that was incredibly influential in my life. In fact, every single day when I put pen to paper in my journal, that is because of Peter Beard. So Peter Beard is an American who went to Yale, and he, in the late 50s, early 60s, went to East Africa. And he was fascinated by the African culture, the landscape, the wildlife, etc. And he actually met someone named Karen Blixen, who you might know from the movie Out of Africa. He met that Karen Blixen, who was a pretty remarkable person as well. And Beard ended up buying a piece of property in East Africa called Hog Ranch, which was in the Mong Hills outside of, um, outside of Nairobi. And Beard was a photographer, is a photographer, and he's an, an artist, but his art is done in journal form. He's a diarist, right? That's, he's like the first person I ever saw identify himself as a diarist. So, but Beard was a dichotomy. Beard, and, and when I say was, I don't mean that he's gone now because we don't know. I'm just saying this was his life back in, in Africa back then. He is a dichotomy because he had this socialite lifestyle. So he was married to Cheryl Teagues, among, among others, and, and had this very flamboyant lifestyle in Africa. But at the same time, and, and, and sadly, the sort of flamboyant side of his life was the side that got most of the publicity. But his, his photographer side and his conservation side, that's the important point I want to make here, is that he had a, a photography side and, and there are so many books about him, and they're all really good. So if you're looking at um, Eyelids of Morning is a great book. Mingled uh, Destinies of Crocodiles and Men, that's a great book. End of the Game was the book that really put him on the map. That's sort of the signature move. And then also there's a book called The Adventures and Misadventures of Peter Beard in Africa, which I found in the Phoenix Public Library in 1993. And I saw this book. I took it home. It changed my life overnight. I was like, my life is too safe, I'm too boring, I don't keep a journal, what am I doing, blah, blah, blah. He was like a real guiding light for me. I didn't care about the socialite side. I didn't care about the Cheryl Teague side, the supermodel side, the parties, the high society stuff or whatever. I didn't care. All I saw was a guy devoted to the conservation side. So I, I, I sort of put Beard in this weird category for conservation, but I never put him at that sort of elite level until I went to a lecture by Franz Lanting. And if you don't know Franz Lanting, he's a, I think he's Dutch. I could, I could be totally wrong about that. Just one of the best wildlife photographers to ever walk the face of the earth. Very intense guy. 
I've, I've met him a few times, been able to hang out with him a few times. It's always an educational experience. I saw Franz give a lecture about wildlife photography in San Francisco years ago, and the first thing he did was talk about Peter Beard and, and basically gave props to Beard saying, hey, you know, this was a guy who was known for a lot of different things in this sort of flamboyant side, but he was a legit serious conservationist. So Beard was one of the first people to look at the encroachment of humanity on the wild places in East Africa, in, in particular a place called Savo National Park. And Savo was where they started to begin to understand that you might have to cull the elephant herds because there were the landscape was disappearing and their food sources were disappearing. And when an, when an elephant dies, it falls over on its side, typically near a waterhole, and it keeps moving its legs. So it moves in a circle until it starves to death. And so Beard got into Cessna, flew over these this landscape of these bone collections where you could see where the elephant had basically in agony kept its legs moving while it starved to death. And he said, look, this is a problem. We cannot keep doing this. Now, this was back in the 60s. And at the same time, he would go on these incredible expeditions around Africa that were just, uh, it's hard to explain. The great thing about his books, like End of the Game and Adventure and Misadventure, is you're getting as much behind the scenes as you are the actual work that he created. And I think that's the message for all of us. I did a, an interview a couple of days ago, and and I was saying once again that when I'm in the field making pictures, that's the that's the juice for me is being in the field. I don't care what happens afterwards. That's why I'll, I'll spend years on a project, make a single copy with Blurb and move on, file it away and move on to another project. And I have friends that have always said, man, we just don't understand you. Like, why would you not promote this? Why would you not try to get known? I just don't care. I do not care. The buildup and the aftermath are not something I'm interested in. It's the juice of being in the field. So Peter Beard is my second hero of the week. I really, really hope that he is holed up somewhere with a bud and um, is not with us anymore. That would just suck. He is phenomenal. So take your time. There's a lot of books about him. There's also a gallery in New York City called Time Is Always Now that has a permanent uh, exhibition of Peter Beards that changes all the time because every time Peter goes in, he tends to take work off the wall and continue working on it. Um, his work is unique, and he's been ripped off more than anyone you can possibly imagine. So in the 90s, there were young photographers that found Beard, and they suddenly just started to copy and rip him off all across the board from photojournalism to fashion to fine art. Everyone suddenly became a Peter Beard fan. And, and that was kind of sad for photography because there's only one. When you see his stuff and you realize, oh, my God, this is pretty amazing. Now, I have a personal story with Beard. So I – and this all, this all happened last week again. So um, there's a photographer who lives in Dana Point named Art Brewer who's a, just the coolest guy in the world. Art Brewer is his name. He's, also, he's considered by a lot of people to sort of be the godfather of surf photography. But Art can do anything. He's got commercial photography business. He can do portraits. He's really talented, and he's been at it for a long, long time. And Art and I became friends when I worked for Kodak back in the late 90s. And he, the first thing I saw when I walked in his studio was a Peter Beard print on the wall, and I was like, oh, he and I are going to get along just fine. And so, and Art's done a whole bunch of stuff. If you want to look him up, he also did a project in a film about Bunker Spreckles, who was the uh, heir to, the, to a sugar fortune who was a wild cat, and Art had some adventures with this guy that are absolutely incredible. So if you can see the film or, or get the book, it's totally work, worth it. Bunker Spreckles is, is the guy that he uh, focused on. But last week, I was thinking to myself, I got to call Art to see how he's doing with the, with the virus, make sure he's safe. 
and I have this thought and two minutes later, my phone rings and I look down and it's Art Brewer. And so we were talking about, um, you know, Beard and the fact that, um, you know, Beard might, might be in trouble at this point. And so, so way back in the day, this back in the nineties, um, Art knows that I love Peter Beard. So Art happens to be on Montauk in New York at, I think what it was, was Andy Warhol's old house. And Peter was there assembling what would become his exhibition in LA. And so Art made this, this Mamiya 6 picture or Mamiya 7 picture that is from beard from behind wearing no shirt, but he has this African wrap that he always wore. So instead of pants, he's wearing this like African wrap. And Art made this picture of him and then made a print for me. And he gave me the print. Well, Beard's gallerist in L.A. is David Fahey, who I also know. So, And Fahey knows that I love Beard because the first day that I met David Fahey, he was sitting in his office smoking his pipe, and he saw me milling around the door of his office because he had a Peter Beard print above above his desk. And I didn't want to go in there because I didn't know him, and I was like, he's going to get pissed if I go in his, in his personal office. But I was trying to get a look at, the, at Beard, and without even looking up, Fahey's like, what are you doing? And I said, uh, I'm trying to get a look at that. And he was like, well, come in and sit down. And he's, he's the coolest— gallery person I've ever met in my life. He's just a great guy. So I gave Art's print to David, and David gave it to Peter, and Peter drew artwork and wrote all over it, and then gave it back to David, who gave it to me, and that's what I have framed on the wall. That's one of my favorite possessions in in photography right there, an, an addition of one unique Art Brewer slash Peter Beard. So that's my story. That's why he's our hero this week. Okay, this is definitely going to be a long episode. I apologize for that. Uh, okay, moving on. I'm trying to think of what my first point, uh, oh, my first point here is I want to make, this is a a photography related post, but it's also an industry related post. And I've talked about this before, but the photo industry now is really about sheep. It's about sheep mentality and it's about creating content. It's not, not necessarily about creating great photography. It's filled with non-unique thinkers. It's filled with people who have seen something become popular and they go copy it, right? That's And I think that's a reflection of our culture in general. It's not to say that there aren't still unique animals or creatures out there, but there's more and more and more conformity, especially in a time of quarantine. What I'm hoping is that instead of going on Instagram and sharing stuff during the quarantine, that people are going off by themselves and saying, okay, wait a minute, we're going to come out of this at some point, and what am I going to do with my life? Am I going to go right back and start making the same stuff I've seen before? And I just want to give you a little uh, background here about my what happened in my career and what the industry said to me while I was making these decisions, which was the worst possible thing it could have said to me. So, and I want to go back to 1997. Um, I'd been working as a photographer from 92 to 97, and I was getting assignments. I was assisting. I had a life. I had a career. I had enough money to survive, but I was shooting a lot of pictures for other people. And I really felt like I hadn't figured out who I was as a photographer yet. And I was the end of like 1997 or 96 even. And I looked at my portfolio and I realized that it wasn't mine. It was, it was, you know, these magazines that had assigned me to do this stuff and newspapers and all kinds of stuff. And I was like, I don't even, I don't like any of this stuff. Yeah, it was published. I got paid. I'm known as a photographer, but this is not good. So I quit and I took a job with Kodak. Now Kodak paid me $37,000 a year, which I thought was all the money in the world. I was like, oh my God, I can donate money now because I have enough for myself. That was my first thought. And so Kodak was easy. I had a company car. I had benefits. I had paid vacation. I had a a job. I worked from home. I had this weird role at Kodak that was a bit different from some of the other roles. There was a lot of freedom. I was primarily working as photographers. But when I took a job at Kodak, there were a lot of people in the industry who 
really looked down on that. Photographer colleagues, friends, whatever, that were very unkind in their like, oh, you're a loser. You're taking a job. You're taking a corporate job because you can't make it as a photographer. Just like the viciousness that happens in the industry. Not everybody, but a fair number of people who put their noses in the air and were like, I'm, I'm an artist. I'm a photographer. I would never do such a thing. Well, what I realized was Kodak was going to give me the opportunity to figure out who I was because I had to sign a non-competition clause, meaning I could no longer do assignments because I'd be competing with my customers. But two, they also signed something that said I had unlimited paper, chemical, and film for the entire time I worked there. So I was able to sell off all my equipment. I kept a Leica and, and two lenses, and I just shot my own work for four years. And at the end of those four years, I was like, oh, um, this is, this is, I now know who I am. And at the same time, that four years of shooting on my own produced the best work I had produced by far up until that time. And I took it, I took the work in little flip books, little tiny four by six spiral bound flip books. I took it to, to what's called Visa pour l'image, which is this big photojournalism festival in France every September. And it's sort of the cream of the crop around the world of photojournalism. It still goes on, by the way. It's worth, worth going to. But I would take these flip books and pass them around and gauge what people thought. And I was constantly approached by people saying, oh, we really want to run this story. Oh, we want to do this. Oh, wow, this work is really you know, good or different or whatever. And I was like, wow, I would have never done this had I not quit photography and started a Kodak. The industry was saying, you're a loser. You know, oh, you shouldn't do that. Oh, you're supposed to be a photographer. Oh, you went to photo school. Oh, you have to do, you know, blah, blah, blah. All the ego of insanity of the industry was built to keep me in line. Right, So you have arguably what's supposed to be a creative industry trying to get everyone to conform into the same packaging. And I realized I don't fit in the packaging. So 99 comes along, and uh, another photographer convinces me to leave Kodak, the safety of this full-time job, and go back into photography. But instead of going back into reportage or documentary, to go into the wedding industry. Now remember, this is 99. This is prior to all of the hipster digital... Um, wedding photographers that emerged in the early 2000s, who I both, you know, simultaneously kind of cringe from, but at the same time, I give these guys a lot of credit for being the first people I ever saw to build legitimate followings and to get those followings to pay them for things. You know, it was a remarkable transformation that happened, but here's my point. I go from Kodak back into photography, but I go to weddings, and those same people that slammed me for taking the job at Kodak slammed me for becoming a wedding photographer. They're like, oh, I would never do that. You shoot weddings if you don't know how to do anything else. I'm an artist. I'm a documentary photographer. I'm a magazine photographer. I'm a photojournalist, blah, blah, blah. And just the like viciousness that people would spew out with the, uh, it was just ego and insecurity. And now these people were clueless because they could not see the writing on the wall. And here's the thing. I was working for Kodak and, and Kodak had developed something called a DCS-520 and a DCS-560. These were the first legit digital cameras. You could do catalog work, fashion work with the 560, and you could do a six-column newspaper image with the 520. These were legit. I'm not saying they're good by today's standards. Far from it. But I saw in 97 that technology already destroying the professional photo industry. I saw it happening in real time. I saw it way before any of these other idiots who were you know, condemning me for becoming a wedding photographer. I knew professional photography as we knew it was on the chopping block because I was pushing the technology. So I leave, I go into the wedding industry, and thankfully to this other photographer who gives me her, her legal contract and she you know, coached me on how to meet with clients and coached me on my pricing, 
First client I ever meet with books me for more money than I've ever met, I've ever made in my life. So my packages were from 4,000 to 10,000. And I suddenly go from making, you know, editorial day rates, which were 400 plus expenses, $400 plus expenses. These rates had not changed in many ways since the 1970s. And, you know, the magazine world was this super egotistical, you know, oh, I'm a magazine photographer. But everybody, hardly anyone could make a living doing magazine work. It was all used for tear sheets. And they would then you'd scrounge on the side to try to get commercial work. The whole thing was a facade. Suddenly, every time I pick up a camera, I'm making between four and $10,000. And I was like, holy cow. Now, at the end of my wedding career, which lasted about four or five years, and in that time frame, I went from shooting the first wedding I ever did, which was for about four thousand bucks. I, sh- I had one. I shot an M6 and a 35 millimeter the entire day with Triax and Tmax 3200. And I kept saying, "No one's going to pay me to do this." And my friend, the other photographer, was like, "Yeah, they will, because you're really good at it, and nobody else is doing it." So again, '99 by early 2000s, all the digital technology had really arrived. And all of these, what I'll call hipsters, were, who were salespeople. They were sales and marketing people. They were not photographers. But that didn't matter in the wedding industry because your client base doesn't really know anything about photography. And if you're a good salesperson, you can sell them whatever. So I saw this bubble building with these like hipster people. And I was like, uh-oh, this is not going to end well. I've done this for four or five years. I've sort of run my, run my way through it. Now, at the end of this... And all during the time I did it, I never conformed to what the industry wanted. I shot a Hasselblad, was my primary wedding camera. I had, I had one back that I used with a Hasselblad. I had a spare back in, uh, in my bag, but I had one lens, an 80. I had a waist-level finder. I had a bag of Tri-X, and I had one back. And I would reload that back so fast because people would say, well, you can't shoot a wedding ceremony with a Hasselblad because you only get – you know, you've got so few frames on each roll. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you can. You have to think. And you, this isn't, you know, guys were shooting 30 and 40,000 images per wedding on digital cameras and using that as a selling tool at the time. And I would shoot a grand total of 200 images with a Hasselblad. So I was completely on the other side of the spectrum. Everyone in the industry was telling me, you can't do this. You can't do this. You're going to go out of business. So when I when I first started shooting digital, I was told by the industry I couldn't use it because it was never going to work and I would go out of business. And then a few years later, when I went back to film, people said, no, you have to shoot digital. Same exact people. You have to shoot digital, you go out of business. It, again, the industry was built to keep you in line. It was built to keep you informed. The last wedding I ever shot was for about $20,000. And the last wedding I was offered was a $40,000 wedding. But I was too sick to do it because I had lime. I was right in the middle of the lime stuff. And my wife was like, we have to do it. We have to do it. I'm like, I can't. I can't do anything for 10 hours, let alone focus and make pictures. But I was getting that kind of money for shooting with a Leica and a Hasselblad and film and doing my own thing. And also telling the client, I'm doing the edit, not you. And I'm doing the book, not you. Because you don't, you don't edit for a living. You don't make books for a living. I do. Let me do it or you mess it up. So again, I was constantly trying to stick to my guns, my strategy, as opposed to letting the industry tell you what to do. Because if you do that, they will turn you into uh, rice pudding. They will just morph you into the center. It's gotten worse and worse and worse over the years. Now, here's the other sad part. Over the, the, during the years that I was doing weddings, towards the end of my wedding career, almost every single one of the people that slammed me for going into weddings came back to me begging for me to help them survive. And begging is not, I'm not using that word in a malicious way. 
begging, begging me to be a second shooter, begging me to give them my legal contract, begging me to, to vet them to clients, begging them to shift jobs that I didn't want or couldn't, couldn't do to them. And the, the sad part is that none of them wanted to do this. None of them looked at it with pride and said, oh, this is something I need to learn and I'm going to do this. They came what I will call turn and burn strategy, which was, oh my God, Milner's must be making a fortune in this wedding industry. And I was making six figures, you know, shooting less than 10 jobs a year. And so they would come and say, well, you know, um, can you pass your clients to me? And I'm like, let me see your wedding contract. Oh, I don't have one. I'm just, you know, I'm a word of mouth person and I'm a handshake. I'm like, no, you're going to get sued and lose everything. Um, what's your strategy? Oh, I'm going to burn a disc of images and hand it to them. You know, that, that is called detached, unattached, greedy, selfish, egotistical, insecure ways of working, right? These, this might sound like a, a, a harsh take on the industry, but I'm being polite, okay? If you come to me after bashing me for doing this and then saying, can I have your legal contract? Will you vet me? Can I second shoot? And I'm going to turn and burn. That is, that is ego run amok. And I think if you're looking for an egotistical industry, photography is right up there towards the top. And so my point to you is you, you can't, uh, you know, you don't want to be the person who, who is not a unique thinker that hasn't figured out a strategy that doesn't stick to the plan. Now, here's the crazy part again, fast forward to 2010, where I'm, it's a Tuesday afternoon and I'm like, I don't want to be a photographer anymore. So I delete my email account, my primary business email account, boom, on the spot. And my wife's behind me. She goes, what are you doing? I go, I just deleted my email. I'm going to move to New Mexico full time and change my career. I don't know what I'm going to end up doing. She goes, okay. So that was, I, I get out. And about two weeks later, I get a call from Blurb, and that's how the Blurb relationships, um, the, the Blurb, in, at least in terms of employment, that's how it started, was a couple of weeks later. Now, same exact thing happens. Same people. Oh my God, I can't believe you're quitting photography. You're working for Blurb. You're a loser. You're taking a job. Oh, you can't make it. Blah, 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 blah. I swear to God, tons of people sniping at me online in person. Oh, I can't believe it. Oh, why would you do that? Oh, blur, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you guys still don't get it. You, you, this industry is going down like the Titanic and you're still clinging to this idea that it's 1985 and you're going to get a job at Vanity Fair. It's just not happening. So same thing. You're a loser. You're a loser. You're a loser. So over the next decade, and this still happens, these same people reach out seemingly completely uh, oblivious to the fact that they trashed me whenever it was to, you know, 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, whatever. Hey man, um, can you get me a job at blurb? Can you get me a job at blurb? Um, my, my business is tanking. Um, you know, my clients are going away. The Instagram has killed us, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, my, and I always start with the same question. Ever made a book with blurb? 99.9% .9 of all these people who reach out for me to try to get them a job at Blurb, have never used the platform. It never even dawned on them to use the platform. That tells you how delusional people are. This entire point is for me to tell you, do not listen to what the industry of photography tells you to do. They will ruin you. You will never get off the ground. You will never understand who you are as a photographer, and you will probably never make anything original because it is not about that. And it wasn't about that back in the 90s, and it's not about that now, because now it is almost entirely the, the bulk of the industry is about conforming to what content has already been proven popular. And so it's just not good. That's why I always harp on people when they say, how do you become a professional? I'm like, why would you do that now? I think there's a lot of people, sadly, right now because of the quarantine, 
there were a lot of people pretending to be professional photographers who were barely scraping by, you know, no health insurance, no backup plan, no savings, spending their time trying to make it look like they were very successful. And as soon as the tap turned off with the virus, they're, they're in deep trouble. And that sucks because I hate seeing people in trouble and I hate seeing creative people that are being restricted because restricted creatives at times are able to produce unbelievable work. And that's a historical fact. If you go back through times of strife or crisis, some of the best artwork in the world has been produced at that time. But most people get damaged and they can't produce. And that's not good. Okay, so moving on. Um, there's a lot of stuff uh, this week about um, <laughs> about social media and also about YouTube and, uh, and then a little bit of politics and then, um, and I've got some stuff about uh, journalism at the end, and also the right to photograph in America, which I think is really funny. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about quarantine and quarantine culture, right, which is now something that we can discuss. And I want to talk about something, or, or a group of people that I refer to as, as YouTube, or social media swimmers. And when I say social media swimmer, I mean people who will swim in whatever direction social media tells them that they might be able to make a profit off of you. So if that means getting as many people on social as possible, they will do that, but then they will immediately flip around if they see an advantage to telling you to not be on social as much and to like reconnect with things like blogs while they're saying, oh, by the way, I'm kickstarting my blog. And then once that peters out because they realize they're so addicted to the short-term social stuff that they don't really want to blog, they'll tell you to go right back in the other direction to social. So when the quarantine hit, I stopped looking at Twitter. Because Twitter was an account I kept back from six years ago when I deleted social. Blurb said, can you keep your Twitter account? I said, absolutely. I don't want to be a jerk about this, but I'll keep it. Now, because Twitter at the time was more relevant than it is today. So I can't look at Twitter because of the conspiracy stuff, the misinformation, uh, whatever. But the thing that really tipped the scale for me was these social media people who were swimmers who were claiming for the last decade how amazing they had to get you they their primary mission in life was to get you me and everyone we've ever known in the world on social so that they could somehow profit from us and they were talking you know this is oh we're connecting the world we're connecting the world it's the same zuckerberg bs that he's been spewing for a decade we're here to connect we're here to connect well the first people to melt down on twitter i mean really melt down were, were all of these social people where they're like, oh my God, it's the end of the first week. I don't know what to do. Is anyone feeling down? Will someone help me? You know, please help. I'm just not, I'm having a hard time. And I think what it's proven is that a, an online connection is not a connection. It's an online connection. You're at home alone in the dark on your screen and the person is not there. So if, if they're melting down after one week, by the end of May, when we're still in lockdown, which is looking more and more likely, um, it's going to get really bad for people. And again, I'm not wishing ill will on anyone. It sucks. I don't like to see that. That's the reason I stopped going on Twitter was I was like, oh my God, these people are melting down and it's the end of the first week. And they're, again, they're still working an angle to try to get people to engage with them because they're melting down so that maybe they can spin that into something. We, you know, we're at the point now with social that there is there is no moral compass left. We crushed it and ran over it with a tank tread like 10 years ago. So people will do, um, will do anything. So I want to give you an example of, of, a, um, of a real connection. So a couple of years ago, while we were still living in California, we lived on a short street, cul-de-sac. Prob we probably knew half the people on the street relatively well. Like they were friends. We'd talk to them, hang out with them, whatever. And there were some people we knew better than others, of course. That's how it typically happens with your neighbors. Um, and there were people on the street that we never talked to, that never talked to anyone else. You know, they were just kind of on their own. But there, there was, no, I would say there was, there was definitely a sense of community. 
but maybe not like you would have in a rural place where there's only 10 families total and everybody's grown up together their whole lives, et cetera. You know, it's the, it's the sub, uh, the sub community subculture of the suburbs, basically. So I'm away traveling. My wife is working in LA and all of a sudden a guy comes down the street on foot. I think he was shirtless and he's pissed. He's really pissed. And he's fuming and he's talking to himself and he runs into a high school kid who lives at the end of the street. And the guy goes, where does Dan live? And the high school kid takes one look at him and he's like, I'm not telling him. And the guy's like, where does Dan live? And the kid goes, I'm not telling you. And he, the guy storms off and he's getting closer and closer to our house. Well, he ends up going to the neighbor's house and the neighbor has their dog tied up in the front yard and the dog is going nuts. And the guy knocks on their door and they have a security camera so you can see him. The guy knocks on the door. And he's cocked, his right fist is cocked back. Like he's going to clock whoever opens the door. Now I'm the only Dan on the street, right? And I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, I have no idea who this is. I've never seen him. I have no idea. I have a sinking suspicion he lives in the apartments behind or a couple of streets over. Something happened to him. And again, I'm totally fabricating this because I don't know. This is my best, best guess is that somebody did something to him from our area. And he went on Google Earth or Google Maps and he was like, oh, you know, it must be this guy in this house and that's the problem and he's coming after me. Well, I'm not even in town. I'm like out of the out of state traveling for blurb and my wife is coming home alone to be in the house. So this is not good. And the neighbors call and they're like, look at this guy on the film. He's pissed and he's looking for you and he's out, you know, he's loaded for bear. He's, he's coming for you. And I'm like, this is not good. So two doors away is a family that I know um, and we're friends, but we don't like hang out all the time or whatever, but he, they're stand-up people. And so I text him and I go, Jim, I got a problem. And, you know, and I give him the rundown and the response is on it. And so, and it's not only him, but it's his sons. And they're like, this is our hood. This is our place. And, you know, we're coming. And so I have a security camera on my front door and security cameras around, not great ones, but they're there. And dude, they were over there, like ready to rumble with this guy to like protect Amy. I was like, that's a connection, right? That is, I've never been on social media with any of these people. I was never on social media with anyone on my street, but that to me is the difference between a connection and an online like. Or like, oh, hey, we're all part of this community, and it's a Facebook group, and blah, 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 blah. So that's the point I want to make with that. Okay. Moving on to something I find incredibly funny. Point number three is about YouTube niche culture. Okay? I, I absolutely love this, and I'm going to give you two examples. So the first niche culture on YouTube, and this is the part of YouTube that I find absolutely fascinating and hysterical. There's two groups I want to talk about. So the first is the burpee community, okay? And I'll explain that. And the second is the hipster-based film processing and scanning community. But let me start with the burpees, okay? If, you don't, if you're from some other foreign, you know, backwater and you don't know what the burpee is, I don't know where this term came from. I don't know what country originated this, but I'm going to just claim it because we're better than you. We're Americans, right? Remember that. So the burpee, B-U-R-P-E-E-S, was basically introduced to my life in middle school as a method of punishment by the coaching staff um, in the physical education department, right? We all had to take PE, physical education classes. And most of the time with the boys, you're separated. There's no girls. The boys are with boys and girls are with girls. 
it's like Lord of the Flies. Kids are getting pummeled every day, beaten. You know, the coaches are laughing, fights every day. It was just survival of the fittest, right? And people think I'm exaggerating. I'm not. I went to a violent school, and PE was like, uh, if you ever seen Gladiator with Russell Crowe, it was a lot like that. So the coaches would get mad, and they would say, all right, line up. We're going to do burpees, right? And so a burpee is a what I'll call a physical calisthenic. And there are two count burpees, four count, six count, eight count. So I'm going to talk about, I think, four count burpees, which is you're standing erect. You're standing in place. Count one is you drop to your hands and knees. Uh, Count two is you kick your feet back. So you're in push-up position. Count three is you jump them forward back underneath you. And count four is you stand and jump at the same same time. Those are called four count burpees. These are not easy. Burpees will will absolutely cook you in a short amount of time. And then when you do like six count burpees, that means you do a push up in the middle and then eight count are even more, more devilish. They're just horrible, right? It's torture. And the coaches spent a lot of time torturing us. That's probably why they became coaches. They loved it. So, you know, some dumbass kid would do something idiotic, punch some other kid or kick him in the nuts or whatever for sport and fun. That's what we did. You had to guard your nuts at all times. I mean, all times you had to be Bruce Lee. Jackie Chan combined just to protect your nuts at all times. So some kid would do something stupid, and then the coaches would say, line up to do burpees. And the coaches, one of my coaches was missing a thumb. So he would get so mad, he would go, you know, God damn it, give me five burpees. And he would hold up his hand, but his thumb was missing, so there were only four digits. And then he would realize that he was only showing four, and we would be standing there with a smirk on our face, which would make him even more irate. And then he would use the thumb on his other hand to reemphasize that he wanted five burpees. So he would line us up in rows, and we would do like these burpee things. And the, th- the thing is, the same dumbass kid would typically start you know, uh, loafing off in the middle of the burpee. So the coach would go like this. He'd go, ready? One, two, three, four, one. One, two, three, four, two. One, two, three, four, three. And I'm using the accent because we were in the South. One, two, three, four, four. And then that dumbass kid would start loafing off and he'd go, one, two, three, four, three. One, two, three, four, two. He'd count backwards. And now you're pissed because it's South Texas, sun, 100 degrees. You're soaked in sweat, and the kid's loaf, you know, sloughing off in the back, and now he's coach is counting backwards. So to get to 50 burpees, you might have to do 75. What this guaranteed was that the kid loafing off would get killed later in the day. He would get dissected, parted out, and sold. You know, his kidney would, one kidney would go to one country, one kidney somewhere else. But on YouTube, there is a burpee community. And these guys have perfected the burpee. A lot of them look like military guys or prisoner, ex-prisoners, like ex-con guys who were working out in prison. And the burpee is something you can do with, you don't need any equipment, right? It's all body weight. They're insane. They will do an hour-long film where it's just them in front of the camera with no talk doing burpees. 500, 600, 700 burpee, 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 burpee. And the, the, here's the best part. People will watch the entire hour and they'll comment like 51 minutes in, hey, his deviation of his left knee was uh, eight degrees outside of what it normally is. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of comments of people watching an hour of someone doing burpees. Um, that's the part of this whole thing when people say, well, I'm, I'm too busy. I don't have time to make a book. I'm too busy. I don't have time to uh, edit my photographs. It's because they're watching hours of, of, of someone doing burpees. It's fascinating to me. Okay, moving on. If you haven't done a burpee, 
next time your kids get in trouble, make them do burpees. They will instantly fall in line. Trust me, uh, they're hell. Okay, and now before we go any further and talk about the film processing and hipsters and scanning and all this, um, I last week I made a, a comment about YouTube using softcore porn to sell different things. And I was like, you know, YouTube gets a bad rap for doing that. And I listed a bunch of, of other things that, you know, I've listed a bunch of genres that are sold using softcore porn on YouTube. And there's probably no more than 50 or a hundred, right? And I'm like, YouTube's getting a bad rap, but I was a little bit off because I found a few more things and I need to list them now. So these are things or adventures or industries that are used that are sold on YouTube via softcore porn in addition to the ones that I found from last week. Ready? Real estate, homesteading, living off the grid, tiny houses, firearms, archery, aviation, veganism, gravel cycling, horticulture, festivals of all kinds of all nature in any place in the world, comedy, animal husbandry, coffee, nature in all forms, anywhere, being in quarantine, mixed martial arts, analog photography, anything to do with the ocean, fishing, hang gliding, kite, flying, stock trading, and any aspect whatsoever to do with the countries of Greece and the island of Bali. So outside of all those and everything I listed last week, there is nothing on YouTube that's being sold with softcore pornography because it just doesn't work, obviously. Okay, so let's get back to the YouTube niche insanity. And now we've gone, we've gone through burpees, four count mostly. And now we're going to talk about hipsters, film processing, and scanning. This, to me, is wildly entertaining. Because, again, hipsters have never had an original idea in their life, right? They dress like people from the 70s. They do things that have already been done, and then they all do that, that exact same thing. So the hipster has figured out that there's a niche to sell people on processing and scanning film at home. Now, the funny part is that they don't seem to understand that this was what everyone did before. Everyone, right? Before the digital, digital revolution— we all processed, right? But I have, I, have even, I have better stories for you. So we all processed film at home. We all, not only did we scan film at home when the Nikon CoolScan first became apparent, the 35 millimeter version before the 9000 came out. And again, I'm sure hipsters are like, what? What are you talking about? They probably think these machines just came out. The Nikon made, the CoolScan, Nikon CoolScan was the scanner for 35 millimeter film for a long time. And then they made one, a 9000, which was for 120. I had both of them. They were remarkable machines. But this is, we all did it. This was not new or interesting or different. Um, and it was basic. It was the price of admission for being a photographer. Now, in addition, we all printed at home, analog printed at home. We had dark rooms in our bathroom. If you were lucky, you had a dedicated dark room. Again, this was the basic foundation of photography. This was not something we made a profit off of or scammed people or tried to get everybody to conform to the idea that you're the one who just figured this out. So when I see a hipster talking about processing film and scanning at home and, and literally acting like they just discovered it. Now, again, the best classic example of this is a hipster photographer a couple of years ago who found pictures from Henri Cartier-Bresson and literally like wrote a post about discovering Cartier-Bresson as if no one else in the world ever knew about this person. And he was like, oh, hey, I just found this guy. You might want to take a look at him. You know, hey, thank y'all. you can thank me later kind of thing. These people are fascinating to me. But in terms of processing and scanning film, and one of these I know for sure, and the other one is I'm, I'm, I'm almost positive of this happening. So I went to school with a guy named Jean-Marc Beaujou, who is a French photographer 
Um, I didn't know him very well. We were sort of acquaintances. We both worked at the college and newspaper kind of thing. He hung out with one group of people. I hung out with another. Um, a driven guy, you know, fearless kind of thing. And he went on to have this incredible career with Associated Press. I think he won two or maybe three Pulitzer Prizes. Like, he's a legit photographer. I think his first Pulitzer Prize came from Rwanda when the story in Rwanda was breaking between the Tutsis and the Hutu, uh, and they were, you know, killing each other by the millions, or it was one direction or the other. I can't remember off the top of my head which direction that went. Um, he was on an assignment in, in Africa in that region and was somewhere in the middle of nowhere and came across a river that was filled with bodies. And that's how that story broke was he was one of, if not the first person to photograph the beginnings of the atrocities about to happen. From what I heard, and I don't know because I've never spoken to him about this, is he built a fire and processed his film and then th transmitted it with a sat phone. So you're building a fire, a campfire, to process color-negative film. So these hipsters talking about living in Soho, you know, uh, doing a little film processing at home, and like, wow, I'm climbing Everest here. It's hysterical to anyone who was around that knows the history of photography, because clearly they don't. The second one is a personal story I know happened, which is a friend of mine, a really remarkable dude um, in general. He's a photographer I met in Los Angeles years ago. Uh, he's an American guy um, that speaks fluent Arabic, and he, his name's Mike Nelson, and he was with a AFP, Agents France Press, for many, many years, and then with EPA, which is European Press Agency, for many, many years. Mike started his career by hitchhiking from Paris to Lebanon in the height of the war, squatting in an abandoned apartment complex and going out every day shooting and processing his film in this abandoned apartment complex. They also figured out that there was some some leader of Lebanon that was in, in exile in Paris, and somehow they found out where he was. They hitchhiked back to Paris and got an exclusive of this guy living in some house that, you know, they, I, I don't know what the story was. It's, it was incredible. But Mike has covered everything, you know, politics, war, famine, whatever. Again, living in Africa, based in Cairo, speaks Arabic, um, very smart, the coolest guy in the world. Like he would give you the shirt off his back and just a blast to hang out with. But he also covered Somalia. And he built fires in the middle of nowhere to cook his film um, to transmit. And so, again, if you don't know the history of photography, if you don't know the way that people worked forever, and you're going around talking about inventing the idea of processing and scanning at home, it is hysterical. And the comments on these posts, these YouTube films, the comments are worth, worth it alone. First of all, YouTube comments in general are the only reason to get up in the morning because they are awesome. And the trolls are the best part of those comments. Because I think trolls on YouTube are representative of who we actually really are as a country, a people, a nation, a population, a species, right? It's the filters all stripped away because of the anonymity of being online. And so people are going to say whatever it is they really feel like saying. And for the most part, people are cool, but that troll, you know, the troll industry is a huge part of the process. And so the comments on these uh, scanning and processing at home or just people using film in general as if it's been invented last week, um, you know, Kodak re-releasing Ektachrome, watching the hipsters go crazy over this, the film they released is not a good film compared to what else was out there, right? People are acting like this is the most amazing thing, and anyone who was around Kodak at the time knows 
uh, that's the one of the last films I would have ever reintroduced, right? It was not popular at the time. It was not particularly good compared to what else is out there. They probably did it because they still had a coding alley or a building that would allow them to make that certain film. But again, if you don't study the history, you would never know. But again, watch all of these. Watch burpee films and watch the processing things at home because it's just fantastic. Uh, Quickly, a little bit about the virus. I hope that everybody out there is doing okay. It's a really scary scenario and just a sad scenario because we saw this coming so far away, and at least here in the U.S., and we, we absolutely did nothing. We did every single thing wrong we could possibly do, and then we lied about it, and we can, are continuing to lie about it. Um, we're not testing here, right? So I'm looking at the map, and obviously I'm looking at New Mexico. New Mexico has a very low case count compared to a lot of other places, but that case count is way higher than it's showing on national numbers because we don't have testing, right? You can get a test here, but it's not easy, and there's not nearly enough happening. The next 90 days is going to be really interesting because when places like New York are starting to peak, I think you're going to see an explosion in the rural parts of America, and that's a problem because the healthcare here is not good. Our healthcare is, we have good systems and we have good doctors and we have good facilities at, in certain places, but we, it's way too expensive and so many people don't have it. And then, you know, they try to penalize you. If you don't have healthcare, you get dinged on your taxes. The whole thing is a scam, right? We're the only first world country that doesn't have this. We act like it's impossible because pharma, the government, the corporations, the politicians, they're all making money off of this current system and they don't want anything to change. That's the bottom line. If every other first world country can solve this, we could too, but we don't. We choose not to. So the next 90 days is going to be really dicey. Um, and I think if you're out there thinking this is going to end relatively soon, and I'm at saying that because I talk to a lot of people who think this is going to be over in two weeks and their kids are going to be back in school, I think you better prepare for a much longer shutdown. And um, I think there are ways of making you, making yourself useful during these times and also re maybe reanalyzing what it means to be human and, and move through the world today. Um, okay. I'm going to skip ahead here. This came up uh, last week in conversation, which is about your right to photograph. This is point five, I think. Your right to photograph in America, right? And so I had written something about, um, you know, being being uh, stopped from taking pictures, and someone someone wrote, "Oh, that's you know, that's not really possible, or that's not true, or you know, because as a, it's a First Amendment right to be able to photograph here in America." And I'm like, "I'm sure it is." The problem is that law enforcement doesn't care. Right. They don't. And, and this has been my experience. And I'm, I'm just going to filter this through my personal experience. And the first thing I want to say is I'm not attacking American law enforcement. I'm, there's a lot of really good people working in law enforcement. And oftentimes they're underpaid and they're undertrained and they're controlled by bad policy. Right. Good people with bad policy. And it's not their fault. At the same time, you have a lot of people working in law enforcement. I won't say a lot. You have a group that are not necessarily good people who are doing what they do because they know they can get away with it. And I've had run-ins with pretty much everyone. I've had run-ins with customs. I've had run-ins with Border Patrol, uh, ATF, and sheriff's departments and police departments all over the place. I've been punched. I've been kicked. I've been clubbed. I've been gassed. I've been illegally detained. Um, and that is what happens because the truth is oftentimes the people that you encounter in the field do not know the law. They don't, they, they simply don't know that you as a civilian have a right to do X, Y, and Z. And secondarily, they do not care. So what they do is they make it up as they go. You know, by law, you have the right, if you're in a public place to photograph law enforcement doing their job, but go ahead and try it and see what happens. 
they will, you, it is a very quick way to get yourself arrested. And then what they do is bury you in the bureaucracy, the red tape and the cost of bringing legal action. And they're, they're untouchable. Let's face it. They are untouchable. And that applies to all of these agencies across the board is that you, you have a, technically you have the right, but you don't try to enforce it. You have to be really smart about how you navigate in the field. Talking to people, explaining what you are doing is critical. And you have to be prepared for absolute non-logical insanity coming back in the other direction. And I'll give you a specific example. I was stopped on the border once in a public place, in a place that I had every right to be and was told I could not be there. And I said, look, I'm in a public place. I'm literally on a public highway. And they were like, nope, if you don't leave, we're arresting you. And I was like, okay, you know, and again, am I going to fight this and go to jail in like El Paso uh, or, you know, Las Cruces because these guys are just, they don't want me anywhere around. Now they don't want me around for a variety of reasons. Number one, they think I'm going to make them look bad. Number two, if something happens to me in that, in that space, they have to come and get me. And when you're dealing with the people that you're dealing with in those areas, let's say the bad folks that are circulating in those areas, that's a risky proposition, right? Do you want to risk your life for some photographer who's down there doing a project? No, they don't. So they're going to say, look, you can't be here. And they will do whatever it is to keep you out of these places. And so you have to realize um, you've got to talk. And so I start talking to this guy. And out of the blue, he goes, do you work for Newsweek? And I said, no, but why? We don't like Newsweek. And I said, um, no, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. He said, do you work for Newsweek? And I said, no. And I said, but it, would it make a difference if I did? And he goes, he goes, yeah, because we don't like Newsweek. So arbitrarily, he pulls Newsweek out of the air and he's like, do you work for him? No, well, even if you did, we hate them, but you still can't be here. And so you have to pick your battles. You have to leave and you have to come back somewhere else and you have to either get a liaison in the community, you have to be prepared Whatever. So when someone says you have a right to photograph, they are naive. Yes, technically, on paper, you do. But that's as far as it goes in my experience. Okay, totally unrelated. And then I've got two more points after that. Um, actually, I have three more points after that. So water bottles. Yes, I'm going to talk about water bottles. Water bottles are something I love, right? And they're super important. I live in the high desert at 7,000 feet. You're continuously putting water into your body here. Otherwise, you're going to suffer in a major way. And also, I'm, I exercise a lot, yoga, cycling, whatever. And so your, your body's like, you know, you're, you need to constantly replenish yourself. So I typically buy things that last forever. I love buying water bottles as presents because 10 years, 15 years later, you run into the person and they're still using it. So I have a, um, two stainless steel water bottles I've had for probably 15 years. They started out green and all the paint's been worn off. They're down to the... To the um, to the stainless look, but they're not insulated and they sweat. So depending on what I'm doing, I can't use them because the water will become hundred degrees inside or it bleeds out into my backpack, et cetera. But I still use them a lot like inside the house and when I'm in the van and things like that. I also have a swell bottle and the swell bottle are the insulated metal bottles. Now mine flew off the roof of my truck onto the highway. So the inner, inner part of it didn't break, but the part between the outer shell and the inner shell broke. So there's a piece of metal floating around in there, and it's loud. So every time I try to drink out of it, it sounds like I'm ringing sleigh bells. And in the middle of the night, it wakes up my wife every time, and she's like, that damn water bottle. And it weighs a ton. But the good news is that it keeps that water cold for a long time. So if I go out on like a long expedition, I always leave that bottle in my truck filled with ice water. So when I get back to my vehicle, I still have it. And last summer, I went on a hike that with four people, and two of them almost died 
And that water bottle was what saved us because we got back to my truck and I was like, here's an ice cold bottle. So anyway, and we were hiking, by the way, in something called like Devil's Canyon. So it was a fitting, almost near-death experience. So last week, um, this loud bottle is driving me nuts. And I'm digging around in our, in our house for water bottles. And I come across this water bottle that n- neither myself or my wife knows where it came from. And it's from a company called Contigo, C-O-N-T-I-G-O. And I think it's an American company. I thought it was Spanish at first, but I think it's based here. It might be based in the Chicago area. I'm, I'm not sponsored by them. I don't know anything about them, obviously, from what I just said. All I know is it's plastic. And on the outside, it has the measurement for what's in the bottle. It's a 24-ounce bottle. And I have to say, for whatever reason, psychologically, when you know how many ounces you're putting in, it makes you want to drink more. So the Swell bottle has no markings. And I, I, I never know how much is in there until I pick it up. And, it's, and it's, it's, not, it's opaque, so I can't see through it. And the clear Contigo bottle, first of all, it weighs like 10% of what the metal bottle does. And it's the PBA-free uh, plastic, so it's not bad. It has the markings on the outside, and then it has this two-part trigger system. So it has a lid that flips back, and then you squeeze with your index finger like you're pulling the trigger. And it opens it up, and then you drink from it. And as soon as you let go with your finger, it seals it, right? And I'm sure this is not life-changing uh, or new information for many of you, but I just wanted to say how excited I was about getting a Contigo bottle from unknown sources because I have this thing. Now, here, being me being me, I found a way to torture my wife with this bottle, and she's at the breaking point, which means I'm going to keep doing it until she snaps. So the two-part trigger mechanism, which is the lid that flips back with your thumb and then the trigger with your index finger, I find wildly fascinating because I'm easily amused. So I said to my wife, hey, she goes, give me a drink. And I'm like, hey, this bottle has a two-part trigger mechanism. And she goes, okay. And then I taught her how to use it. And now every single time, like 12 times a day, I say to her, hey, have you seen my water bottle? It has a two-part trigger mechanism. And so the first like six times she laughed, now it's not a laughing matter anymore. Now it is pure animosity that comes from the other direction. Even if two in the morning when I'm drinking out of it and she wakes up and realizes I'm drinking and she, of course, then wants a drink, even at two in the morning with her, like one eye open, one eye closed, I'll be like, hey, have you seen this bottle? It's a two-part trigger mechanism. And she will lose it, whether it's two in the morning or two in the afternoon, and start screaming about this bottle and about how nonsense and useless that piece of information is which makes me warm inside. That's why I got married. So I could torture another human being for the rest of my life. Okay, two more points. Jared Kushner. How do we go this week without talking about this punk? Is was impossible. I can't do a podcast this week without talking about Jared Kushner. Now, here's the deal. As you know, I am not a doctor. I am not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and I do not have any training in the mental health industries. However, there is a term that is easily researchable, which is called sociopathic, right? I don't I didn't say psychopathic. I said sociopathic. Sociopathic behavior is basically the inability to feel empathy towards another human being. If Jared Kushner is not a sociopath, I would be surprised. I think with and again with no training, you can look at him, you can watch him, and you can listen to him, and you can look at the track record that he has and his family has. And you, he, to me, it is so clear that he's a sociopath. And this week was another example when he got up and literally butchered a press conference um, about a job that he has no business being in. 
And he got up and said some of the most callous, detached, horrible things that you could possibly say at a press conference. But more telling to me is if you go back historically from the time that Trump took over and Kushner suddenly came into the spotlight, watching his facial expressions in times of, of trauma, he has a blank stare, but his eyes look like he is fascinated more than anything else. He, to me, is displays classic sociopathic behavior, inability to feel empathy. And if you look at the track record of his family and the things that they've done, his father went to prison. Um, he is, Kushner has been over and over and over done the terrible things to people. How he's in this, it's, it's despicable that he's in the positions that he's in, you know, trying to solve Middle East peace, etc. He's given these positions because his father-in-law, also a sociopath, his, but, but for different reasons. I think Trump's a sociopath for different reasons, and I think Vladimir Putin is a sociopath for even other reasons. But Kushner is in these roles and given these positions because his father-in-law, our president, is a career white-collar criminal. And criminals don't want people around right? They don't want people to know what's happening. They have a very small circle of people. I wouldn't even call it a circle of trust. I would just call it a very, very small circle of people and that they want around because they do not want the public to know what's actually happening behind the scenes. That is why Jared Kushner keeps giving, getting these positions. Trump looks and says, oh, well, I'm going to put you on the virus task force because I'm going to fire everybody else that knows what they're talking about because behind the scenes, I'm going to be working for economic stimulus to help me with hotels, houses, my, fi my personal finances. And so Kushner gets the role again and again and again. And all he does is screw things up. So if you look at his track record in the last four years, it is a, it is a minefield of disaster. So he's the worst possible person to have on the task force. He does not care about anyone else. But I do think it's more than just not caring. I think it is a classic sort of sociopathic um, behavior from him over a long period of time. And again, I'm not a doctor. That's just my, my opinion. It sort of feels that way. Uh, okay, so I think I've talked about this guy before. And um, I want to bring it up again because I think now is a very interesting time. So journalism has changed a lot. From the time that I started in 1988, getting a degree in photojournalism in 92, and then working in the newspaper world, editorial world, working sort of around, you know, covering political conventions and all kinds of stories everywhere under the guise of being a photojournalist. And the, the sense of ethics that were involved at the time, the sense of truth that was involved at the time, the sense of if you did something wrong, you were going to get fired. There were a lot of examples of photographers crossing lines getting fired because, you know, it was undermining the ethics of journalism, blah, blah, blah. And it's really hard to be completely impartial as a journalist anywhere, but that's, your, that's what you strive to do. And what television journalism has become today, you cannot use those two things together, television and journalism, because when you're anchors, and I'm going to use CNN in particular, when you have Chris Cuomo and Anderson Cooper and these people, they are celebrities, right? And you cannot have anchors as celebrities and then pretend to be journalists because it doesn't work that way. So CNN to me is not journalism, it's entertainment. It's a game show, and it's the way the sets are designed, the way that the screens are dissected into eight, ten different things at a time. It's meant to distract. It's like a shiny object, and it's like swimming in the ocean with a you know silver dollar in your pocket that's reflecting light, and you're puzzled by why the moray eel is coming up behind you or the barracuda is coming up behind you. It's a shiny object. I do not think it's journalism. I think there are hardly any repercussions whatsoever for doing anything ethically wrong because the news cycle is moving too quickly. And again, plenty of examples. New York Times has been cited. 
many times in the last decade. You have um, Brian Williams at NBC who was you know, fabricating stories. You've got magazine writers fabricating stories. Look at Boris Johnson in the UK. These people just keep resurfacing and they keep getting their jobs back. So that tells you how much things have changed. But there's a person I want to mention and a model that I want to mention that is interesting to me because I think it's more representative of, of what the future of journalism is going to be. And that's a guy named David Pakman. I, th- I think it's P-A-K-M-A-N. I should know that, but um, you know, I'm not a journalist anymore, so I can get everything humanly possibly wrong. I can do it. So Pacman, I believe, is based in the Boston area. He's probably in his 30s, I'm guessing. I do not know his background in terms of journalism or where he studied, but he's, he's intelligent. He produces a what I would call just a, a news show with it looks like one or two other people out of a studio in the Boston area. And his, his, I, would, I would make him left-leaning as opposed to right-leaning or, or neutral. I think he's weighted a little on the left-hand side. That, to me, is irrelevant. I don't care because I'm talking about him in a very different way. I don't really care what his policies are. It's about the idea that a lone individual can produce uh, a, a high-level journalism news show on their own. And to me, he's more relevant than CNN because if you watch him over an extended period of time, you can, you know, you can obviously tell there's a, there's a direction to his coverage, and once you know that, then you factor that in. But the same applies to every other network. It's like I would watch Fox News um, knowing what Fox News is. It's a propaganda arm of the Republican Party. So you go, okay, well, factor that in. The same thing. You're going to listen to Rush Limbaugh, Beck, Hannity, whatever. Go ahead. My father used to all the time. My father could not differentiate the fact between propaganda and news. My father thought that what Rush and Hannity and Beck and Fox was talking about was actual news and truth and neutrality. He, he just didn't know. He couldn't separate it because he'd gone so far down the Republican rabbit hole, and he became more, more and more radicalized the older he got and more, and more isolated, I should say, because those political views then isolated him from, from doing so many things because he had fabricated in his mind that you know, these were all devilish, you know, democratic plots. It was just sad. And I had many conversations with my father about this. And, and towards the end, it was really ugly because he, he, he was just living in a, a tiny, you know, right-wing world, basically. And so I, I think Pacman is—I'll just put him on par. I think someone like that is worth watching just as much as watching something like CNN. And I actually think what he's doing is better than what's happening on CNN because David Pacman's not a celebrity. He probably never will be a celebrity. He probably doesn't want to be a celebrity. What he wants is readership, but he wants people to look at him and say, look, you've been doing this for a long time. Your production quality is good, and you're presenting me with an interesting— uh, data set from the stories that you're producing. So I think it's worth looking at these people. Um, the first time that I saw a shift in this was the Afghan war. The first time that we, you know, after 9-11 and we went into Afghanistan, I s- realized immediately that the media had changed dramatically and that some of the best information were coming from unknown people on the ground who at that time were blogging. You know, there really wasn't much, uh, the social media was not a, pl- a player at the time. So I was like, wow, you know, here's an aid worker who's on the ground um, doing a blog. And you'd read this stuff, and it was so diametrically opposed to what was happening in the media that you'd be like, wait a minute. Okay, maybe, maybe it's a data point. Maybe it's watching the media, listening to someone, or reading a blogger like this, and then creating your own sort of data point in the center of what might have actually happened. And so, but again, the data point, I think, is a key thing. Um, and it, bring, it brings up a, a, a memory in my mind, which I will end this week on because we're already over an hour, is I want to end with a story. So I was covering the Republican National Convention in downtown L.A. in the year 2000. 
and the Los Angeles Police Department had militarized the entire downtown. They'd gone through, ripped out the, all the in, uh, homeless communities. God knows where they took those folks. They were gone. L.A. was a ghost town, and there were roadblocks all over controlling access. And the LAPD used it as like a picnic, you know, a way of testing military tactics on a civilian population. I've never in my life seen anything like it. The abuses that I saw from the L.A. Police Department at that time were mind-boggling. And remember, I'd covered Houston in 92, which was really bad, and San Diego in 96, which was pretty pretty okay. L.A. took it to a whole new level of, like, military well, there's a rule that applies during something like a convention where you can you can detain people for three days without charging them for anything. So it's kind of a slow moment at the uh, at the at the at the event, and there's a designated protest area, and there's a group of what's called anarchists, right? Which were basically a bunch of young kids wearing black, and they're you know sort of symbol symbolic of this anarchy movement. And they weren't that organized. They were kind of doing this, kind of doing that, and it was kind of a slow moment. So myself and a couple of other photographers decided to follow this group of anarchists because they were walking around downtown LA and the streets are deserted because the LAPD is like literally jogging in formation with guys in riot gear and they're clubbing anyone or anything that gets in their way. I saw them club a business guy who had a cup of coffee in one hand and a briefcase in the other. And he's walking down the sidewalk, going to work, talking on an early mobile phone. And he gets within arm's reach of LAPD and they just start wailing on him, clubbing him. He drops his briefcase and the coffee and he, he looks up. He's just incredulous. He's irate. He's like, what are you doing? And the LAPD guy pulls back his face shield and goes, nah, 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 nah. And there's a sheriff's department guy standing there who looks at the LAPD guy and goes, oh, that's real mature. So the guy, the LAPD guy lowers his mask, screams at the business guy. You can't walk on the sidewalk. You have to walk on the street. So the guy picks up his briefcase, and he gets on the street, and he's paralleling the sidewalk, and he comes to another group of LAPD who start clubbing him. And then they say, you can't walk on the street. You have to walk on the sidewalk. And it's a little game they're playing with each other to have fun because nobody's looking, right? They can do whatever they want. So as we're following these anarchists who basically, I should note, stopped at the crosswalk. So the depths of their anarchy only went so deep. But they stop at the crosswalk, and the light turns green, and they go across. And we're all just walking down the street. There's no one around. They're not doing anything. And all of a sudden around the corner comes an entire riot group, LAPD force, who starts clubbing all of us, right? And now I'm, I have a press credential around my neck that's the size of a dinner plate. It's impossible to miss. So myself and another photographer are in our left hands. We're holding the, the badges, our credentials out. And in our right hands, holding our cameras and our elbows up, trying to shield from the blows that are coming from the batons from the police department. And they finally realize that we're two journalists, and so they scream, get behind us, get behind us. And so we go through the police lines, turn around, and we start photographing from the other direction. And now they're going after these anarchists who are like high school kids. And these kids are now terrified, right, because the cops are coming in, and they're just wailing on them. And around the corner comes a bus, a fortified bus, like a prison system bus. And they load all these anarchists in there, and the photographer and I are looking at each other like, what is going on? So by now, the, quote, media has arrived, television media, who's, who basically are – everyone has to go live, right? You can't do anything on tape. Everything has to be live, and then you brag about you're the first person to go live. And the PIO, which is the public information officer for the police department, comes up, and the first television journalist looks at them and says, gee, uh, you know, Mr. Mr. PIO, uh, what happened here? And the guy goes, well, we're just – you know, we're, we're doing a service to the community. Uh, we caught these kids breaking into stores in downtown L.A. and looting, and we're, you know, we're taking them away. And the photographer and I look at each other, and we're like, they didn't break into anything. They didn't loot anything. They stopped at the crosswalk. 
they're just walking down the street. And what they were doing was arresting them and holding them for three days so they didn't have to deal with them until the convention was over. So the reporter, the television reporter, turns right around and goes live and says, well, you know, the LAPD's out here just doing their job and protecting everyone on the inside from these terrible anarchists who are breaking into stores in downtown. I kid you not, the photographer, this other guy, I don't even know who he is, takes a running start and just comes up and blasts the television reporter, which then sets off like another melee. And he's pissed. And he's like, what are you doing? You know, we were here. We followed this. This is not true. This did not happen. Like, what are you doing? You're not fact-checking. You're not doing journalism. You're spewing out what the, the PIO was telling you to spew out. That, to me, again, I, I, was, I would say still young in my career. That was another example of I was learning, okay, the whole journalism world is not exactly what we were led to believe. Again, great people doing great work out there, but there's a whole other thing, especially when the TV networks are involved, because, it, again, it ain't about journalism. It's about eyeballs on screens and ratings. So that is my story for the week. This is maybe the longest one of these I've ever done. It's an hour and 12 minutes. I'm guaranteeing there's probably no one left. I was going to say maybe maybe a family member, but no one in my family even knows I do this podcast, and, and even fewer still would have any interest in it. So if you lasted this long, I'm really glad. Um, you are in quarantine, so I guess I could just keep going if I wanted to. And by the way, I, this is these are not rehearsed. I keep notes on my phone during the week of points, and then I just go for it. So... Uh, this is not meant to be super polished, and I did leave out some tips. Uh, I am going to do a film about why I don't use Instagram because it's a preemptive strike because I keep getting asked on a weekly basis why and how I don't use Instagram, and I put together eight points that are mind-blowing about why I don't use that platform, and again, I keep seeing people on it, and I did a little research on Instagram and the parent company Facebook just in the year 2018. Just to give you a snippet of what this could, these companies have done to society and culture. And if you can still make an excuse for using it, man, hats off. It's um, in, in, in the face of this data that I will present in this film. Um, and that's one of eight points, by the way. One of eight points about why I don't use the platforms. And just one year in the history of those companies. And... Um, it is remarkable the damage that they've done. So that's on, on tap for next week. That's the only point I have. But that's how I do these things, and that's why I do these things. So thanks for checking in, and I will talk to you next week.